Hi everyone, my name is Hadley Fisher and welcome to Resilience Agenda Radio. At Resilience Agenda, our big idea is mental fitness, the mindset, process and strategies you can use to develop, maintain and improve your mental health in an uncertain world. But today I'm with Donald Robinson, who's a philosopher, psychotherapist, recovered rebel rouser, practicing Stoic and author of books such as Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, Practical Wisdom for Everyday Life. In his latest work, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. He's one of the pioneers of the resurgence in new Stoic thinking, which counts, among others, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, and Ryan Holiday, and much of Silicon Valley as converts. And naturally, he joins us from Athens in Greece. Donald, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Very much looking forward to our conversation. So we're going to be talking about all sorts of things today, stoicism, meaning, resilience, mental health, what it means to live a good life. First of all, you're in Athens, but that doesn't sound like a Greek accent there. What has brought you to Athens and how have you been going with the whole COVID situation? Well, confusingly, I'm Scottish, as you can probably tell from my accent and my name. I lived for many years in England. I worked in London and Harley Street when I was uh, in my beginning of my career as a psychotherapist. I trained other psychotherapists in London and then emigrated to Canada. So I'm also a Canadian citizen. I've lived in Canada for about six years, but I'm also a permanent resident, permanent resident status in Greece. And I'm living in Athens at the moment. So I guess I'm not that cosmopolitan. And yeah, COVID I think has been an interesting experience for everybody. In Athens, we've got quite strict lockdown measures, which I think is a good thing overall. It's kept the rates down relatively low here compared to other countries. And uh, we have an indefinite lockdown at the moment, so we don't know when it's going to be lifted. So that's kind of interesting. We have curfew at 9pm during the week, and I think it's 6pm at the weekend. And we have to send a text message when we leave the house. And wear a mask everywhere we go out in the streets. So it's a little bit stricter, I think, maybe compared to to most other countries. But I'm very fortunate in that I'm mainly a writer or I work, I do training and coaching and stuff online. And so I'm I'm one of the fortunate ones that my lifestyle hasn't been impacted too much by the the lockdowns and stuff. And in fact, I'm far busier at the moment than than I would normally be because everybody wants to do podcasts and interviews and webinars and things at the moment. So I've been doing a lot of those. First of all, tell us about your journey. You've written that you're a troubled teenager who stumbled upon philosophy as a way of figuring life out. Now you write about it and help other people figure out theirs. Talk us through how you got to where you are today. Well, I guess it started when I was a young guy. Unfortunately, my father passed away when I was about 14 years old. And he was a Freemason, which is very common in the part of Scotland where I lived. All my friends' fathers were Freemasons as well. And he left behind a bunch of books on Freemasonry. And I read them. And they had a lot of kind of Old Testament Christianity stuff. And they also had a lot of references to Hellenistic philosophy. So they had the four cardinal virtues of Greek philosophy. And they talked about Pythagoras and Plato and stuff like that. And that got me curious, so I started to read a lot of books about religion, about Christianity, and I started to read about philosophy, basically. And looking back, I now realize 
that my father found in Freemasonry a kind of philosophy of life, a set of moral values that guided his life, ethical principles. And I guess I was looking for something similar, but through philosophy. And I didn't find it. I studied philosophy at university at Aberdeen, and I loved it. But it was too academic to really fill the same role that my father's Freemasonry had filled for him. I was really into Wittgenstein and Heidegger at university. Uh, my master's degree was on, my dissertation was on Jean-Paul Sartre. But I loved all that stuff, but it didn't, it seemed kind of hard to really use it as a guide to life. It wasn't a substitute for, it wasn't a Western alternative to Buddhism, really, at a practical level, which is kind of what I was looking for. And then I stumbled across the Stoics, kind of when I was doing my master's degree, I think, at Sheffield. And the Stoics filled this gap because they provided some academic philosophy. Stoicism is the philosophical inspiration for modern cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, and it contains a whole bunch of contemplative psychological techniques, kind of like meditation techniques, like Buddhism, yoga, or something like that. And so these were my three main interests. I've been reading books about all of these subjects, and suddenly I thought the Stoics cover all three of these things in one place, and it's all kind of neatly integrated together. And that was over 25 years ago, I think. I won't do the mental arithmetic now, but round about that. And I thought maybe it's just another fad. It's another phase he's going through. Like, But I'm still really into Stoicism and that doesn't. there's no sign of that changing. And I still view it as my philosophy of life. So it kind of stuck with me. And maybe that's something we will end up talking about more because Stoicism has this kind of tendency to be sticky. And that has quite important implications for its role in, in modern psychotherapy and mental health. So philosophy, you've used the word a couple of times. It's a word that makes a lot of people ill or at least sends them to sleep. But up until about 100 years ago, philosophy had more in common with popular psychology than it did with debating the definition of obscure words. Talk us through how relevant and practical this ancient philosophy was how the wisdom of the ancient philosophers was lost and how you know the split into philosophy and science occurred and then how it started to influence modern therapies like cbt well, nowadays we think about philosophy and therapy as different things but in the past all these disciplines were just different aspects of the same subject they were studied and written about by the same people and so in particular, ancient philosophers didn't really consider psychotherapy to be a separate subject from philosophy. When we first started giving talks and writing articles about stoicism and psychotherapy, there were a few people, particularly modern academic philosophers, that said, oh, you guys are kind of hijacking philosophy to make it seem like modern therapy. You're kind of reading that into it. And I thought that showed a really a shocking ignorance of the history of the subject because psychotherapy has always explicitly been a part of ancient philosophy really since the very early days of it you know from the pre-socratics onwards the very earliest greek philosophers and i don't mean that in any kind of such loose or figurative i mean like literally they use the word therapia in greek and they compare it to like a drug a pharmaceutical for the mind a medicine for the mind they talk about it as treating a, a sickness or an illness. Even Socrates very explicitly describes his famous trademark Socratic method as like a medicine, but uses talking instead of drugs. 
and it aims to cure a kind of illness that consists in a type of moral or intellectual conceit. So this medical model of philosophy as a therapy for the psyche was explicit in Pythagoras and Socrates and other early philosophers. And the Stoics, the Hellenistic philosophers in general, really developed that idea. And the Stoics in particular were especially known for developing the therapeutic angle dimension of philosophy. So nowadays we think of philosophy as something that's kind of bookish and academic. In the ancient world, I mean, it just helped like probably to explain it as simply as this. In ancient Greece and Rome, people thought there were different types of philosophy. And Plato and his school and Diogenes the Cynic represented two kind of polar opposite conceptions of what it meant to do philosophy that were often contrasted. So that's where the word academic comes from. Plato founded a school called the Academy. When we talk about philosophy kind of retreating into the ivory towers, that's kind of what people have in mind. So Plato's Academy was known for being very scholarly and bookish and academic, whereas Diogenes the Cynic kind of sneered at books. He was almost a bit of a Luddite, and he was more like an Indian holy man or something. He went around naked. You know, his whole emphasis was on trying to strengthen his character through voluntarily enduring hardship. Uh, he wasn't really interested in, in logic or metaphysics or theology. He thought philosophy was all about developing uh, self-discipline and endurance. And the Stoics adopted a kind of middle ground. They combined bits of cynicism and academic philosophy and other schools of philosophy. And so the Stoics would say it is useful to study metaphysics and logic, but it's not an end in itself. And actually, it can become a vice if you become too bookish. So logic and metaphysics and stuff are useful insofar as they help us to improve our character, the Stoics would say, basically. And so it's a different conception of philosophy. I guess it mainly has different priorities. Knowledge isn't just an end in itself, but it's a means to an end of developing moral wisdom and strength of character and flourishing as human beings. And so I really think it's a shame that the goals of philosophy and the goals of psychotherapy became separated over the centuries. I think it, it was a lot better when they were integrated. And funnily enough, many people today, without realising the history of it, miss that. And I think a lot of people, what people say to me, why they're attracted to Stoicism, what they often say, they say like maybe about four very simple analogies that they draw. They go, look, I like Stoicism, they tell me because it's like Western alternative to Buddhism. So it's more familiar to me. It's more consistent with my cultural norms and values, they would say. Or they say it's like a secular alternative to Christianity. So it gives them the kind of guide to life that Christianity gives people. But it's based on philosophical reasoning rather than on faith, revelation, or tradition. And they also say they like Stoicism because it's like academic philosophy, but it's more practical and down-to-earth. And they say, finally, it's like cognitive behavioral therapy or modern psychotherapy, but it's bigger in scope and it's more lifelong and it provides more of an actual philosophy of life, whereas CBT is time limited and goal directed. So it lasts a few months and, and then, you know, the idea is it pretty much comes to an end. So people who want something like that, but that's more permanent are often drawn to stoicism. Yeah, a good time to just define, going back into my academic shell here, but the, the term stoic, you talk about big S stoic and small S stoic. And when most people imagine the word stoic, they're thinking of someone who doesn't care about anything, 
who is emotionless, doesn't engage with the world around them, and is generally a bit dull. Can you explain the difference between the philosophy of Stoicism and the word as it's come to be defined? Yes. And first of all, a slight digression. This point that you're making is actually part of a more general point about language in Greek philosophy, because you'll find the same thing is true of Epicureanism, scepticism, cynicism, academic, and sophistry, and probably some other terms that we use in Greek philosophy as well. So all of those words have devolved into kind of caricature of their original meaning. And so often, careful academics will capitalize those words when they're referring to the ancient Greek or original use of them, and they'll use the lowercase when they're using them in the modern sense. So we say someone is cynical if they're kind of sneering at people and kind of negative and assume the worst about them. But that's really got very little to do with what capital C cynicism, the ancient Greek school of philosophy represented. Epicurean today is somebody who just likes fancy food, maybe dines out a lot or something, right? But the ancient Epicureans were actually quite austere. They were followers of Epicurus and they drank barley water and ate cheese and, you know, lived quite a simple life, almost monastic. So these things have kind of changed the meaning over time. Stoicism is a good example. So lowercase stoicism is often described as having a stiff upper lip. It's an unemotional coping style. So it's a way of coping with emotions where someone represses or conceals painful or unpleasant or shameful emotions. That's how I would define it psychologically, right? And it's very important because there's actually a bunch of research. There are a number of different research tools that are used. For example, the Liverpool Stoicism Scale is one of them, validated measures that are used by psychologists and health researchers to measure lowercase stoicism. And there's a bunch of data from different research teams over the years that shows bad for you. Like, uh, contrary to what people assume, actually doesn't lead to emotional resilience, but quite the contrary. It undermines emotional resilience and leads to increased vulnerability to developing mental health problems and, and other issues over the long term. So it's funny because people think of low-case stoicism or having a stiff upper lip as being tough, but actually it's a form of weakness. Like it makes you vulnerable. Like you're more likely to encounter problems. And it's important. That's a paradox. It's important to, to emphasize that. Or you could say it's ironic. Like what people see as being tough is actually a weakness. And so... Capitalist Stoicism is a school of Greek philosophy that flourished for about 500 years in Greece and Rome. It's a big deal. Freudian psychoanalysis only lasted less than a century. It's pretty much obsolete now. It's viewed as something comparable to alchemy by modern psychologists, kind of, you know, almost like a, a precursor of scientific psychology, kind of, although it, it, you know, well, chronologically, actually, it was around after the beginning of scientific psychology. It was kind of backward step in a way. But nevertheless, psychoanalysis has kind of had its day already. And, you know, we think of it as a big kind of cultural phenomenon. Marxism, like, flourished for, you know, just over 100 years or so. And so these kind of cultural movements we think of as significant. Stoicism lasted about five times longer in the ancient world. And then it had its impact on Christianity as well. And so it, it kind of left its imprint on Western civilization throughout the centuries. But as a living school, it was around for five centuries. And the Stoics had a much more nuanced and complex theory of emotion that happens to be the inspiration for cognitive behavioral therapy, which there are mountains of evidence 
from lots of different research teams around the world that show that cognitive behavioral therapy is potentially therapeutic for a wide range of problems. So bottom line is one of these things spelled with a lowercase s is bad for you psychologically. The other thing that's capitalized, we have indirect reason to believe and some direct evidence is actually good for you psychologically. So what you really wouldn't want to do is confuse one with t'other, like the healthy thing with the unhealthy thing. But if you go on the internet, you'll find it's chock-a-block with people confusing these two things, unfortunately. So if people take nothing else away from this podcast, hear the word stoicism in the future, it doesn't exactly mean miserable and dull. Socrates is like the godfather of Stoicism. He's their main role model and precursor. And funnily enough, nobody thinks that Socrates was dull. I've yet to find anyone that thought Socrates was a boring man. Like, he was incredibly kind of witty and charismatic and multifaceted. One of the most interesting people in history, actually. No one ever accused Socrates of being boring. And also, the Stoics wrote satires. Like, they were particularly known for it. We have one that survives by Seneca. We have several by Perseus, one of his, his friends. And Chris Ipus, the third head of the Stoic school, wrote jokes and reputedly died laughing at one of his own jokes about a donkey. So we've talked about Stoicism, but let's actually delve deep into what it actually means. What do Stoics believe and how is that different to common thought? And there are a number of Stoic maxims which we'll go through, but to me there's a couple that really stand out. One is that we should aim to live wisely, what the Stoics would call living according to nature. And I guess more specifically, that means using rational minds to think clearly. And perhaps even more importantly, the one that becomes the basis for CBT and for you know interpreting much of the world is that it's not what happens to us that causes us distress. It's what we think about it and the judgments we apply over it. Can you elaborate on some of these Stoic maxims and just bring Stoic worldview to life with really practical examples? All right. Well, that's a couple of different things. So I'll take a minute to address those. So the central doctrine of Stoicism is notoriously simple, actually. Epictetus says you can say it in a couple of words, but then it takes you a while to explain what those words mean. So the central doctrine of Stoicism is generally agreed by academics to be that virtue is the only true good. And so it's an ethical doctrine. Different schools of Greek philosophy define themselves in terms of what the Greeks called the telos, or the goal of life. We might say it's the meaning of life. So the Epicureans said the goal of life was hedone or ataraxia, which means pleasure or peace of mind. And the Stoics said it's arate, which means virtue, loosely translated. A better translation, in my view, would be moral wisdom. That would be closer to the actual meaning or connotation of that word. And so the Stoics think that the most important life is to develop this kind of moral wisdom that's the basis of all of the other virtues. And so the core of Stoicism is an ethical doctrine. I mean, Stoicism was a big philosophy. It encompassed theories of ethics, theology, and metaphysics. But the central pillar of it was universally agreed to be this ethical doctrine, which derives largely from Socrates and other earlier philosophers, including the cynics. And the reason for that, if you'll bear with me for a, a brief digression, just to kind of explain what that actually means derived from a number of arguments, but the main one is in a platonic dialogue called the Euthydemus, 
So in that dialogue, Socrates says to his interlocutor, the person he's talking to, like I'm talking to you now, he says, how would you define what good fortune consists in? And the person that he's talking to says, well, that's a really dumb question. You know, it's an easy question. It's like a childish question in a way. You know, good fortune consists in having loads of money, loads of friends, an important position in society, a big house, you know, all that kind of stuff that people value being good looking and in good health, you know, that's good fortune, Socrates. It's not a difficult question. Everyone knows that. And Socrates says, well, that's a good answer. But if we take the first thing you mentioned, like having lots of money, like having wealth, I could see how that would be good if it was in the hands of a wise and virtuous person. Like it would allow them to do really cool things, like to be very philanthropic and help other people and stuff. What if you take loads of money and give it to someone who's foolish and vicious, like a genocidal dictator, tyrant? Surely that would just allow them to do more bad stuff. And so his interlocutor has to concede that money in itself is neither good nor bad, but it depends upon the use to which we put it. It allows us to extend our control over our environment, but that might be in order to do terrible things. Like, so it's really more like an opportunity or an external advantage rather than something that's intrinsically good. And so having conceded that, Socrates says, well, spoiler alert, you know, the same thing applies to all of the other things that you just listed. You know, he won't, I won't go through them all one by one, but he says the same argument applies to them all. They're all like what we sometimes call, philosophers call external goods. They're more like external advantages or opportunities that extend your control over life. But, you know, it really depends how you use them. And so his interlocutor agrees to this eventually. And Socrates says, well, surely then the only thing that's intrinsically good would be your ability to use things wisely and virtuously. And that would be moral wisdom. So the only truly good thing is moral wisdom. And the only truly evil thing would be a kind of moral ignorance and the value of everything else kind of depends on that. Now, that's a radical claim, like, because it turns upside down this poor young man's initial preconceptions about value and his ethical worldview. And in fact, Socrates, the cynics and the Stoics were aware that it turns upside down the prevailing values of our society, which is based around hedonism, consumerism, narcissism, egotism, you know, all the isms that everyone loves so much, celebrity culture, all these things revolve around placing intrinsic value in external goods. And philosophy, so this argument from Socrates really inspired the Stoics to say moral wisdom or virtue is the only true good. What matters is your character and the use that you make of events that befall you in life more than the events themselves. And even deeper paradox is that the deprivation of some of those external goods might be turned to an advantage by somebody who's wise and has strength of character. So for the cynics, enduring hardship, poverty, even sickness, might simply make them stronger, like if they know how to endure it well, in the same way that physical exercise might be uncomfortable and exhausting, but it makes us stronger physically by exposing ourselves to it. So the cynic says, well, sometimes actually voluntarily exposing yourself to Austerity or deprivation might be what benefits you if you're wise and enough strength of character to, to really digest the experience. And what you think of as goods like wealth and reputation could actually destroy your character if you're not careful, paradoxically. So the Stoics really have this radical moral philosophy. Now, I spent a little bit of time on that. So you think that's interesting, this kind of radical ethical argument that they have. It goes all the way back to Socrates. It also has a consequence. It has a whopping great massive consequence. So if you imagine, as the Stoics like to do, somebody who had really wholeheartedly embraced that worldview and they lost their job, their girlfriend dumped them and they ended up bankrupt and they became sick. 
they would be, by that very fact of possessing these values, you'd think more able to cope with adversity than somebody who placed intrinsic value in external events. So you would expect them to be more psychologically resilient as a consequence of the radical moral values that they hold. And so many people saw stoicism as a kind of royal road to a form of psychological resilience. It's interesting because it's not based on kind of life hacks, but on something far deeper, like on on your values and on the core of your very character itself. And the Stoics thought we can learn these little psychological techniques. Sometimes people think of Stoicism in that way, but really there's something far deeper, more permanent, more profound that's underlying it, which is a whole way of life, a whole set of moral values that would potentially make you more resilient in the face of adversity. So it's like a bunch of therapy techniques and self-help techniques, but rooted in something far deeper and more solid. And that's partly why people are particularly attracted to it today. So you've talked about moral values and most people don't really you know, have a, a moral set these days. Individualism is our culture more so than, than Christianity. Um, 2,000 years ago, what's the relevance of those things to now? Talk us through why Stoicism and these Stoic beliefs, this worldview and these ideas are still relevant today and maybe even more relevant today? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that the the Stoic philosophy is grounded in something that's a very fundamental moral principle. You could say in a sense it's abstract or it's generic or it's perennial. It's this idea that virtue is the only true good. That was true in Greece and it was just as true in ancient Rome and it's just as true centuries, thousands of years later because the truth or falsehood of that basic meta-ethical really principle, very abstract, very fundamental ethical principle, that doesn't really change depending on external circumstances because it's so deep, like it's so abstract and generic. And there are other aspects of stoicism that have to adapt to historical circumstances, to culture, to advances in science, technology and psychology. But the basic moral insight is, you know, timeless, arguably, you know, because it's meta-ethical, it's, it's kind of abstract. And, you know, also there are things that we have in common. We have many differences between us, and ancient Greeks and Romans. We have a lot of things in common with them as well. One is that Marcus Aurelius happened to live through one of the most famous pandemics in history, the Antonine Plague. Some people often point to that, and there are obvious parallels with the pandemic that we're experiencing at the moment. But he's not the only one. Socrates also lived through the Plague of Athens, And there are many parallels between the plague of Athens and the current pandemic that we're experiencing. In fact, you know, we would have learned many things. One is, I mean, I think anyone that's interested in public health, by the way, is aghast at this complete kind of, what's the expression, like dog's breakfast that we've been watching unfold over the the past year or so. It's just kind of, I won't say shocking, but I mean, it's difficult really to put into words how completely shambolic and, you know, disorganized, full of misinformation, you know, like it's a public health catastrophe, really, like what's what we've seen unfold. And, you know, there are a lot of things people say, well, we don't really know about the virus and the pandemic because we're waiting for the research. Yeah, but, you know, like it's not the first rodeo. Like we've had, there have been pandemics throughout history and actually, you know, often similar things happen. There, there are common features to them. One of them is that many of these viruses become 
spread more rapidly and larger number of fatalities in the winter. Like, funnily enough, we learn that from history. So even a classicist could have preempted some of the social consequences or some of the problems that would have arisen in the current pandemic. You know, you can't be sure, but there's some pretty strong clues from history. This is what happened to Marcus Aurelius in the winter months. The Antonine Plague accounted for more deaths. And there were social problems that arose as a consequence of it. Conspiracy theories flourished in misinformation uh, back then as now. So there are social things that we have in common in historical circumstances. This thing about old, dead, white guys, I that's a phrase that you hear a lot. And it's almost difficult to know what to say to it because it's so kind of fundamentally misinformed in terms of who. But for a start, the Stoics were famous for believing that women should study philosophy. And there aren't famous Stoic female teachers, unfortunately. That's a feature of ancient society, that women tended not to have their voices recorded in that way. There were female philosophers in other schools of philosophy, but we have two lectures from Masonius Rufus, one of the most famous Stoic teachers, where he's insisting that women should be taught philosophy the same as men. And we know that one of the, well, the second head of the Stoic school, Cleanthes, wrote a book entitled That Virtue is the Same in Men and Women, which is echoed centuries later by Masonius Rufus. So it looks like this was almost certainly a principle right from the outset in Stoicism. And really it comes from Socrates, who was famous for teaching philosophy to women. And not only that, even more controversially, Socrates says that he learned philosophy from women. He attributes some of his most fundamental philosophical ideas to about five or six different women. Um, Socrates, when he was a young man, learned philosophy and rhetoric from Aspasia, the, the lover of Pericles. He also says he learned about the art of love which is one of his main interests in philosophy, from Finarate, his mother, who was a midwife and, and studied matchmaking and love, and from Diatima, this priestess that's described in the symposium. He says he learned the Socratic method of questioning and aspects of love, assuming that's not just a, a kind of cognomen for Aspasia, which it may be. And the Delphic Oracle, who was a woman, uh, was the one that set Socrates on his philosophical mission, he claims. Not only that, Socrates and other philosophers were inspired by Pythagoras' earlier philosophy, and about three different ancient sources say that Pythagoras learned his ethical philosophy from one of the Pythias, one of the priestesses in the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. So what we get in ancient philosophy isn't so much the voice of women speaking, but often it's the voice of women speaking through men, in particular, this is one of the many, many ironies about Socrates. This is why I think Socrates is one of the most intriguing and complex figures in history. Socrates is portrayed often as a man who's channeling the voices of these incredibly interesting women on, on many levels, and, and often very fundamental aspects of his, his philosophy are derived from these, these interesting women, highly intelligent, highly educated women that have influenced him. So there is this female influence kind of just slightly off to one side in the Socratic Stoic tradition. Also, this idea that they're all white men, they're definitely dead. I'll concede that part, right? But white, well, first of all, like the definition of whiteness, particularly in American society, is a little bit fuzzy around the edges. 
Like there's always been some ambiguity as to what extent extends to Middle Eastern people, for example. And then as it happens, most of the famous Stoic philosophers were from the Middle East, as we would call it today. And as far actually as Iraq, like several of them came from ancient Babylon, and only one of them was born in Athens. Zeno himself was like an, not exactly an illegal immigrant, but he was shipwrecked. He was shipwrecked at Athens at Piraeus, at Poart. He was Phoenician. So the closest today ethnically would maybe be the Lebanese people. So not what I think people mean when they say a bunch of dead old white men exactly. So just like the definition and the big S and the little S stoicism, you've got to look a little bit deeper and help this idea get past its PR problem. Yeah, culturally, Stoicism doesn't originate. And what I'd add to that is that the perception of Stoicism was always that it was foreign philosophy at Athens, you know, and it was kind of the subject even of a little bit of racism in that regard. It was kind of looked down upon a little bit by native Athenians. So they were like, this is an immigrant's philosophy. Even more so, cynicism was viewed as a kind of working class sort of immigrant's philosophy. And so, you know, this idea that it's the kind of ivory towers and the bastions, of what, like that's almost the opposite of how it was actually perceived in the ancient world. It was an outsider's philosophy originally. Okay. Let's come back to this idea of living wisely and emotional resilience in the face of hardship or setbacks, or life problems, or even pandemics. Can you just give us a bit of a a riff on this idea of it's not what happens to us, it's how we think about it. Epictetus, in terms of it's how he says it's our impressions of things that cause our suffering. Shakespeare said there is nothing good nor bad, thinking makes it so. There's a number of witty ways of expressing this, but this is also the core insight in some ways of cognitive behavioral therapy you know what are you thinking about that how can we change your beliefs about the uh, event seligman talks about it with his abcde model beck and ellis talk about it just give us in simple terms a bit of an understanding of what we call at resilience agenda reframing but this idea of reappraising a situation more helpfully yeah well, first of all, a slight digression into the history of some of the names that you just mentioned. So Seligman's resilience training, that part of it is just directly lifted from Albert Ellis's rational emotive behaviour therapy. It's one of the main influences that, that Seligman, Martin Seligman, one of the main proponents of resilience training incorporated into what he did. And Albert Ellis in the 1950s had read Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic authors, and he derived that part of his early cognitive therapy or precursor cognitive therapy, call it rational motive behaviour therapy, that bit of it, his ABC model or ABCD model is directly derived from Stoicism and he, he explicitly says that in his writings. One thing that Ellis was good about, unlike many subsequent authors, is that he was a bit of a geek actually about showing off his knowledge of the history of his own field. So I kind of, I really admire Ellis for that. He was quite honest about the fact that loads of other people had come up with similar ideas before him. So let's talk about the practical applications of that. I'll say something actually else about the Beck said, normally the cliched method of cognitive therapy is that you identify the beliefs or the thoughts that are causing our emotions. A good way of illustrating that cognitive model of emotion 
is that clients come into therapy and they talk about how they're feeling angry, frightened, or sad. And then the, the therapist will say, so, you know, what's that like? How's it affecting you? And then the client will typically talk at length. They'll tell their story about how it's ruining their life. It's making them physically ill. It's destroying their relationship. It's damaging their performance at work. It's doing all these horrible, horrible things that are destroying their life. And having talked about that for anything from five minutes to, you know, half an hour or more, then they usually reach a point of stuckness where the client will say, and I know this is awful, like, and I really desperately need to fix it, but I can't help it. It's just the way I feel or something like that. And so they're saying, I can't do anything about this. These are just my feelings, anger, fear, sadness, whatever, and I can't control my feelings. And Ellis would lean forward sometimes at that point and say, yeah, but it's not just how you feel, is it? It's also how you think because thoughts and feelings aren't two completely separate things. You never come across a feeling that isn't accompanied by an underlying belief, attitude, or pattern of thinking. They're intertwined. And where there's a feeling, you'll find a thought. And the reason that's so important is that thoughts are propositional. In nature, they have truth value. And so typically, for example, someone who's anxious will have a belief along the lines of something awful is going to happen imminently and I won't be able to cope with it. That's the general model of anxiety, some variation. And they could be wrong about some of those things. Maybe something awful isn't going to happen or it's unlikely to happen. Maybe if it did happen, it wouldn't be as bad as they appraise it to be. And maybe they have more coping resources than they realize. So they might be overestimating the probability and severity of threat. They may overestimate its imminence and they may underestimate their coping ability. And so that opens up a whole toolbox of cognitive therapy techniques because we can now start questioning all these different aspects and where's the evidence for it, where's the evidence against it? What are the pros and cons of looking at it that way? Could you test this out in practice and find evidence for it? How might someone else interpret the same situation differently? And what would be the consequences of them doing so? Boom, we've invented cognitive therapy, like all based on this premise that it's not just how you feel, it's also how you're thinking. So this is the real key insight. And the Stoics knew that two and a half thousand years ago. But Ellis thought, if you're going to dispute, as we call it, that's the term we use, cognitive disputation. And cognitive therapists say they dispute people's beliefs using a form of Socratic questioning. Right. Using that term kind of loosely, but they call it Socratic questioning. So if you're going to dispute someone's beliefs, Beck said, who's the second major pioneer of cognitive therapy, but he noticed that some people, if you say, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I think I'll go and eat worms. Right. It's a kid's nursery rhyme. It's a good example for cognitive therapy. So there might be somebody that says, nobody likes me, everybody hates me. And Beck might say, well, where's the evidence for that? And they might be able to get in a conversation where they reevaluate it. And someone else might say it, though, and just be like, well, it's a fact. Nobody does like me. I'm just describing what I see. So it's not up for debate with the second person. They view it as simply a description of a fact rather than a hypothesis, which may or may not be true. And so Beck said, look, you have, first of all, you have to kind of loosen their grip on the belief before you even begin disputing the evidence. They have to see it as something that's up for debate before you begin debating it. And so that's called, the technical term we use is cognitive distancing. And by that we mean the distance between the belief and the external events to which it refers. So we have to kind of prize away or separate our beliefs from external events and see them as merely hypotheses. And there are a bunch of techniques that we use to help people to do that.
So let's do that in a really practical example. COVID is awful. My parents are going to die. If I get it, I'm going to die. I'm going to lose my job. Everyone's stressed. There's nothing to do. The world is awful and it's getting worse. Uh-huh. Okay. So first of all, like there's a, there's a whole battery of claims there, many of which may or may not be true, right? So you said if you get it, you're going to die, which of course is statistically unlikely to actually happen. In fact, you're far more likely to develop immunity as a result of contracting it, right? So these are kind of catastrophic beliefs that focus on the worst possible outcome. So a therapist would say, what are the pros and cons of these beliefs? What are the consequences of holding them? And what would be a more rational or constructive alternative way of looking at the same situation? And so there, the main thing is probably overestimating the probability of the threat and the severity of the threat. And that's what people typically do when they experience anxiety. Interestingly, when people are angry, they usually underestimate probability of threat. When people are anxious, they usually overestimate probability of threat. Sometimes we call that catastrophizing. So we get the client to reevaluate the evidence. But in order to do that, we have to get people to say, okay, so maybe this is our way of looking at things. Other people might view the situation differently. And so it's worthy of debate. And then we can begin questioning it more freely. The point I wanted to make is that was normal in cognitive therapy until about 10 or 15 years ago. And then a bunch of researchers, really lots of different researchers around the world, arrived at the conclusion converged on the conclusion that maybe cognitive distancing in itself might be therapeutic. And so it may be that you don't actually have to dispute the evidence for people's beliefs as long as you can get them. And this is a little bit tricky to describe. If you can get people to view their thoughts as hypotheses, to view them from a slightly different perspective, then it tends to reduce the emotional impact of them. And it has other psychological benefits that are kind of tangible, but a little bit hard to articulate. So it increases what we call cognitive flexibility, and that leads to improved problem-solving, decision-making, and coping ability. But it's the ability for somebody, for example, say you say, I'm going to get this and I'm going to die. There's somebody who's able to think, well, I could look at it that way, but I guess there's other ways that I could possibly look at the same situation. So someone that's able to kind of move between several different perspectives is going to be less emotionally overwhelmed by the most negative one. And they're also going to be more able to think things through in a balanced way and figure out practical ways of coping. So rather than kind of getting lost in the weeds of disputing the statistics and the evidence and stuff, modern cognitive therapists will tend to train people more in psychological skills, like actually resembling Buddhist mindfulness meditation in some ways. So if you're meditating and you have the thought pops into your head, what if I get COVID and die? You wouldn't sit down and go, well, what do the statistics say about that in the middle of your meditation practice? Like, let's look up the data. Like, you would simply say, well, you know, that's just a thought passing through my mind. I don't have to become entangled with it. And you would view it as an object, like you were viewing a cloud passing across the sky. So you relate to your thought as if it was an object rather than, becoming entangled with it during meditation. And what we now know is normal, healthy, non-anxious, non-depressed people um, tend to be more able to do that in general with intrusive thoughts. And so being generally able to take a step back from your thoughts and view them objectively seems to contribute to psychological resilience. And that's easier than disputing the evidence for individual thoughts. It's also more like what the Stoics did, incidentally. So... Which is a good segue to my next question, which is 
you don't need to go to a psychotherapist to be able to do this. Don't tell people that. You put me out of business. But in a survey in Switzerland at the moment, I just read today, it said 44% of people you know, feel like their mental health has been affected by COVID. It appears life problems are getting worse in different ways. And I think I did a calculation once. There's enough time for everyone in Australia to see a psychologist for about six minutes a year. That falls into a very exclusive category of observations. It's like a little box that I have. Like it's a very small box of things that Sigmund Freud said that were actually correct. Like it's very small. It's like a matchbox size box, right? And so Freud, even Freud, who said a lot of bonkers things, accurately predicted that it was impossible to give everybody psychotherapy because it's time-consuming and prohibitively expensive, particularly if Freud's the one doing it, like because he saw each of his clients for about 3,000 sessions each or something. So, yeah, like, he was right about that. It's expensive. So, like, in order to do psychotherapy, it's, you know, anyone that really cares about public health and mental health, resilience building is the holy grail of mental health. You know, psychotherapists or Johnny come lately on the scene, like, they're mopping up like when a problem's already happened and there's a kind of certain amount of for the profession for mental health you know there should be a kind of a certain amount of regret or shame about that scenario it shouldn't have been allowed to happen in the first place to some extent like we should be focusing far more on prevention and yet research on resilience building is minuscule compared to the amount of research that's taken place on remedial interventions on psychotherapy basically stoicism for many people, the word actually sounds like a synonym for resilience. Maybe that's misleading, but it, it kind of connotes that for many people initially. And stoicism is more of a preventative approach. Actually, there are therapeutic approaches in stoicism where, for example, if someone's bereaved, the Stoics would attempt to help them with their feelings following bereavement. But mainly stoicism is a resilience building or preventative mental health approach. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that a lot of researchers are quite interested in it at the moment because you know prevention is better than cure as every child could tell you and we need to be doing a lot more on that front building up the resources and the fitness to be ready yeah you know it's flourishing we're all meant to be more resilient anyway i mean like i was talking to a guy just now actually one of the the fellas that's doing our military conference for stoicism and uh, we were chatting about the idea of you know in a sense resilience or our capacity for resilience in some respects is kind of innate and you know it's almost like we lose resilience in some ways through it's society that lacks resilience not human nature would be the way that i'd like to kind of put it maybe superficially that we, we pick up bad habits from our society that make us less resilient and often it's about really getting back to basics I mean, I can give you a good example. You know, one of the most robustly established discoveries in the entire field of psychotherapy research is that anxiety abates naturally through repeated prolonged exposure under controlled conditions. How's that? Like they, we call that habituation or exposure therapy in psychology. There's no doubt about that. Like we've known it for well over half a century. Like researchers now take it completely for granted because we know this more than we know anything else how the emotions work and that's so deeply ingrained in human nature that in fact the this mechanism functions in almost every living creature like if you have a pet hamster and you drop a book when it's going over to nibble its carrot 
and it runs away from it, you could instill an aversion to carrots in your... You could give your hamster a carrot phobia. Like, if you made a loud noise every time it went over to its carrot, it would become associated with it. But equally, your hamster would be able to habituate to that anxiety. If it kept getting a little bit closer to the carrot and nothing bad happened repeatedly, eventually your hamster would get over itself and it would start eating the carrot again, right? So all living creatures have a natural capacity for what we call habituation. In other words, anxiety goes away over time. As long as nothing bad actually happens, we repeatedly put ourselves in the presence of the trigger, the frightening situation. For some reason, humans are rubbish at this. And we have developed many avoidance strategies, far more than the hamster has access to. The hamster only really has one. It, can, it runs away, right? That's about it. But it's got to eat eventually. Whereas humans have all these really appalling techniques that they use to repress or conceal anxiety. We take sedatives, we drink alcohol, we smoke weed, we try and distract ourselves, like we immerse ourselves in watching TV, like other methods of trying to avoid our emotions. And that prevents normal emotional processing from taking place. And that's, none of this stuff's natural. It all kind of comes from society, really. But also, here's a bit, I'll say something controversial now. Like, this is one of, this falls into the category of controversial things that I say that I usually find most people agree with, right? I always think I'm going to get more pushback against this than I actually do. And all psychotherapists would agree with us, by the way, right? There are a plethora of self-help techniques and strategies in books, courses, and on the internet, which people use maladaptively is what therapists call subtle avoidance or safety-seeking behaviors, which in many cases actually maintain the emotional problems that they're supposed to help with. Like what? Uh, breathing exercises would be a classic example. So many like repeating mantras, visualization techniques, certain relaxation techniques, like Psychotherapists know that when you're dealing particularly with people with severe anxiety or depression, they often come into therapy in the first session. And sometimes these techniques can be used adaptively and they're helpful, but very often people are using them as ways of avoiding contact with unpleasant feelings such that it actually prevents normal emotional processing from taking place. A really good example is social anxiety, which is my specialism, my clinical area of expertise. So social anxiety is a really easy one. There are loads of self-help techniques that people use that make social anxiety worse rather than better. So we know that there's an, it's about like 0.92 or something correlation between measures of social anxiety and measures of self-focused attention. And that's an exceptionally high correlation in the field of psychology. So in other words, self-focused attention and social anxiety are virtually synonymous. Like, oh, they're very, very highly correlated, right? So you might think, Donald, you're telling us something that's obvious. That's just like saying people are self-conscious. Yeah, but you need to look very closely at that because it's actually extremely important from a practical point of view. So people with social anxiety, we know uh, state-of-the-art treatments train them to refocus their attention more on the audience, the people that they're talking to. And we know that's therapeutic, right? But what does the opposite? would be many self-help techniques, such as breathing exercises, which require people to pay more attention than normal to their own body rather than to the audience. 
And also visualization techniques, repeating mantras, they encourage people to become more introspective than they would normally be in conversation. So we do these things called socialization experiments in CBT, where we prove things to clients by getting them to test them out in the consulting room. So the way I would normally do this as a clinician working in this area is, say, a client will often say to me, well, I repeat my wee mantra to myself, and that's my way of trying to control my anxiety when I'm talking to people at parties and stuff. But I feel really awkward, and sometimes I don't know what to say, and I get super self-conscious. And, you know, I say, how long have you been using your mantra for? And they go, well, I've been using it for years. And I'll say, has your anxiety got worse or has it got better? Well, it's getting worse. Well, what's the correlation there? Like, well, I never really thought about it like that, right? So it's not got a good track record, this mantra, has it? But it feels like it's helping me. It's like an addiction. It feels like it's helping you. It's actually making you worse, right? But let's test it out. So I'll say to them, just tell me what you did yesterday. Like, what did you have for breakfast? Do you know, where did you go? Who did you meet yesterday? So they'll tell me. And I'll say, okay, now repeat your mantra to yourself in your head while you're telling me what you did yesterday. And they'll go, um, uh, like, because uh, it's hard to walk and chew gum. Like, it's distracting. You're increasing your cognitive load, so it's difficult to behave naturally while you're doing several things at once like that. And I'll say to them, listen, if I kept repeating a mantra to myself in my head while I was trying to have a casual conversation with someone, I'd be able to give myself social anxiety. Like, I'd make myself really self-conscious and awkward. And so clients go, I guess that's right. Like, so how's it working out for you to use that strategy? Well, maybe not that well then, right? So maybe the most helpful thing you could do is abandon your safety-seeking behavior or your subtle avoidance. Abandon these coping strategies. Like, wean yourself off them. Like, because they're maybe just maintaining your anxiety, but it feels like it's helping me. Like, that's the addiction, right? People often get hooked on things that seem to temporarily alleviate their anxiety, but actually make them more vulnerable to it in the longer term. Do you think this explains, you know, this term of the snowflake generation and young people these days with the higher reportage of mental health concerns and related concerns about the state of the world? Do you think that plays into that as well? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it could be, that'd be horrible to think. It's a big part of it is people just having, like, maladaptive. One man's self-help is another man's safety-seeking, I used to th- say, right? So, like, that maybe like, people are over-dependent. I mean, I said the most robust technique we have is exposure therapy, like graduated exposure therapy, right? And sp- everyone avoids doing that. Of course, people avoid exposure. That's human nature. Like, you know, we run away from things that we're frightened of. And we, now we have 101 different strategies, like distractions that help us to do that. So it could be that that's part of it. It's also we're sheltered from a lot of things in society. You know, we talk about the Stoics, they contemplate mortality. They're surrounded by death. You know, it was normal for a family in ancient Rome to lose half their children. Like many children died in infancy, you know, a lot. Yeah. And so people saw that. And people's parents died at home, like were nursed at home. They didn't have hospices and stuff. They didn't have like, the drugs and the healthcare that we do. People saw animals being slaughtered for food. Like they saw warfare up close, not through drones and stuff. Like so, it was a more visceral society where people were much more exposed to risk themselves, to the mortality of other people, to the slaughter of animals. Like, and we still have all this, but it's behind the screen from us. You know, someone else slaughters the animals for us. Someone else fights the wars for us. 
and someone else looks after our dying parents. Like, and what we we just sit at home watching Netflix, like and watching cat videos on Twitter or whatever. So we're kind of in a cocoon from it, and that it does obviously make us less resilient if we're not voluntarily exposing ourselves to hardship and to stressful situations. We have to do that to inoculate ourselves against stress. But also, I'm going to add a caveat to that because I've seen some really stupid, bad psychological advice on the internet for people talking about these things. The Stoics, again, were far smarter. So they said, look, you know, you have to expose yourself to stress in a graduated manner. Like, you know, on the one hand, you if you avoid stress completely then you'll never develop strength of character. But if you bite off more than you can chew, you'll overwhelm and destroy yourself. So you've got all things in moderation. You have to judge it so that you're just on the edge of your comfort zone. Like you're kind of expanding yourself. It would be like picking a sparring partner for the Pankratian or wrestling or boxing in the ancient world, the analogy they use. So you wouldn't use somebody who's a novice as a sparring partner who's much smaller than you. It'd be easy for you to beat because you would never develop any skill or confidence that way and equally you wouldn't pick some goliath that's three times your size and is the world champion because he'd just wipe the floor with you and that'd be kind of demoralizing after a while so your ideal sparring partner would maybe be somebody who's evenly matched with you or a bit better like you might stand a chance like of possibly beating them or learning something from the experience but the stoics say well how do you know what you can face how do you know what's going to be too much Or how do you know what's not going to be enough? And Epictetus says to his students, everyone has to answer that for themselves. They do it on the basis of previous experience. Like, So you start off in little baby steps, and then you observe how you got on through trial and error learning. And you learn by pushing yourself, like what your limits are. Same as if you go to the gym. How do you know how heavy the weights are you can lift? Well, trial and error. Like you start off small and then work up. And then when it gets too difficult, you stay at that level for a while and practice it until you get better. So, I mean, it seems like stating the glaringly obvious, right? You'll see terrible advice on the internet about people saying, well, everyone should just go out and expose themselves to the things that they're frightened of. Like, we shouldn't bother having trigger warnings for videos about rape and stuff like that because people should just tough it out. Well, that's just idiotic advice, right? Because that's going to be overwhelming to somebody that's been sexually abused and has PTSD or complex PTSD. It's not going to be therapeutic for them. It's going to make them worse, right? It's, you know, graduated, repeated, prolonged, controlled exposure in a safe environment usually, or not exactly in a safe environment, you're in a kind of controlled environment usually that's therapeutic, not just throwing people in the deep end. Like, you know, that's more likely to traumatize them and make them worse. So, you know, again, people have to be careful and sensible about what they expose themselves to, but they have to take a certain amount of risk if and toughen them, expose themselves to a certain amount of hardship if they're going to strengthen their character. So it's very much just like undertaking physical exercise. You know, you don't want to do too much and injure yourself. You know, don't want to do too little and then you won't benefit from it. You've got to, you know, find out what the right amount is for yourself. We are running out of time and we are, oh, I'm absolutely loving this. We're going to have to do this again. But before we wrap up, a couple of things. I mean, there's always different things I wanted to ask you about. We're definitely going to have to do this again. Where can people find out more about Stoicism, the way it's meant to be interpreted now? There's a guy called Ryan Holiday over in the US who is becoming a bit of a, what should we call him, 
a modern philosopher of sorts, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, these people. You know, where can people learn more about Stoicism? You know, tell us more about uh, Stoicon. Tell us more about Stoicism and tell us more about where people can get either in touch with you or learn more about your books and your ideas. Well, that's easy. Well, Ryan's a friend of mine and he's written best-selling books on Stoicism. Uh, Ryan Hardy's The Obstacle is the Way, which isn't really a book on Stoicism. It's a, a self-improvement book that has a lot of Stoicism in it. And then also he his other book, which is one of his other books, which is on Stoicism, which is called The Daily Stoic. The Daily Stoic, I think, is actually one of the best books for people to begin reading because it consists of many original translations of some of the best excerpts from the Stoics with kind of practical modern-day commentary on it. So it's really good. It's one of the most, probably the most popular modern book and Stoicism, so that's a great place to start. Massimo Pellucci's books, like How to Be a Stoic, for example, are really good modern introductions. He's a professor of philosophy. William B. Irvine's book, A Guide to the Good Life, is another slightly older or earlier bestseller. I don't entirely agree with his interpretation of Stoicism, but I still think it's a really, really good book. And then there are like zillions of other books on Stoicism that people write. I've never been to Silicon Valley, so I don't know what it's like there. It's funny because sometimes I get lumped in with Silicon Valley Stoics, and I think, I've never been there, so I wouldn't know anything about it. I do live in Toronto, which I, like, I'm reliably told is almost as bad, but like, it's, I don't, there are a lot of millennials that work in the tech industry that are into Stoicism. Approximately one-third of the Stoic communities, conferences and whatnot tend to be women. We have a conference coming up called Stoicon X Women, which is... You know, is run by women and it's focused on, oriented towards women's interests and stuff. So it's not exclusively for women. Men are, there's a, one man speaking at it and men can attend it as well. But it's kind of like, it's for women to highlight and showcase their perspective on stoicism. And so obviously a significant minority of people interested in stoicism are women. Sometimes people go, ooh, is that because stoicism is like a male thing? And I go, no. It's, that's a very, it's an interesting fallacy of thinking that, right? Because philosophy in general is predominantly male-dominated. So the Epicurean groups also are 70% male, for instance. So it's really, I think, a reflection of a wider gender bias in philosophy in general, whereas psychology and psychotherapy are more female-dominated, incidentally. <laughs> So I don't think it's something intrinsically about Stoicism, actually, although people sometimes get that that perception. So they want to find out there's all, all these books that they can read, and the main place I would send them is the Modern Stoicism website. Modern Stoicism is a non-profit organization. It was set up in 2012. It's run by a multidisciplinary team of volunteers. It includes some well-known authors in the field. I was one of the founding members of it, and it's set up by Christopher Gill, who's Professor Emeritus of Ancient Thought at Exeter University. And it's a non-profit philanthropic public engagement organization. does research on the benefits of Stoicism. And if you go to the website modernstoicism.com, there's loads of free resources there. There's over 700 articles from people all over the world talking about Stoicism from many, many different perspectives. We have a bunch of annual conferences, Stoicon conferences. We have an online course called Stoic Week that we run every year. About 20,000 people altogether have done over the years. Uh, we have this other course that I designed called Stoic Mindfulness and Resilience Training, which we actually use for carrying out scientific research, psychological research on the benefits of stoicism. Uh, we publish our research on the website and you can see some of the reports there. Like There's a lot of ongoing psychological research on the benefits of stoicism. So yeah, like there's tons of free 
resources out there if people want to access them. I have all the links to what we've just mentioned in the show notes which we'll put together soon. Donald, thank you so much for coming on Resilience of Regender Radio. It's been fascinating. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Resilience Agenda Radio. Remember, you can join us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Resilience Agenda website, or your favourite podcasting platform. Feel free to follow us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Resilience Agenda and sign up for occasional updates and strategies to build your mental fitness www.resilienceagenda.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow us so you'll never miss a new episode. Leave us a review online or share Resilience Agenda Radio with your friends so they can learn more about the Mental Fitness Toolkit and hear more from our lineup of world-renowned experts and storytellers. Until next time, I'm Hadley Fisher, and thanks for listening in to Resilience Agenda Radio.